This is the Pick Your Poison podcast. I'm your host, Dr. JP, and I'm here to share my passion for poisons in this interactive show. Will our patients survive this podcast? It's up to you and the choices you make. Want to know about the dangers of black market butt lifts? What hardware stores and hotel rooms have to do with healthcare, or in this case, shouldn't have to do with healthcare? Then stay tuned. Today's episode starts in the emergency department. You and your team are gathered, gowned and gloved in the resuscitation bay. EMS rolls in with a middle-aged patient, and one of the medics says, lady found down in a hotel room, unresponsive and hypoxic, meaning she was found unconscious with a low oxygen saturation. With one ear, you listen to the rest of their report while doing a quick assessment of the patient. Bottom line, the medics don't have any other useful information about what happened. The patient is completely unresponsive, including to pain, not flinching as the nurses place IVs in both arms. Her chest wall is barely moving, indicating a weak respiratory effort. Her oxygen saturation is 80%, which is dangerously low. You start at the beginning, where every doctor is is taught to start in training, with the ABCs. Airway, breathing, circulation. Her airway and breathing are not intact not adequate to keep her alive, this means we stop the assessment here and intervene immediately. The treatment for this is oxygen, a breathing tube, and a ventilator. So you slide an ended tracheal tube down the back of her throat and through her vocal cords. The respiratory therapist hooks her up to the ventilator. Now, on 100% oxygen, her oxygen saturation is 98%, much better. Her pulse is on the high side at 110 beats per minute. Her blood pressure is 85 over 42, which is low. The nurse hangs IV fluids to help improve the blood pressure while you do a physical exam. It's unremarkable. There are no other abnormalities. Once all the lines and tubes are secured, several nurses help you roll the patient on her side carefully to prevent dislodging the breathing tube. Checking the back is important in trauma situations to check for gunshot wounds or injuries you might have missed from the front. It's part of a complete physical exam. In medical patients, it's rare, though, to discover anything useful. As expected, the back of her head and torso are unremarkable, and you're about to roll her back when you notice an oily substance on her buttocks. It seems odd, but not of critical importance right now while you're trying to stabilize her. You order blood work and a chest x-ray. The blood work is normal. The chest x-ray shows atypical patchy infiltrates, basically patchy spots in the lungs, atypical because it could be caused by a number of different problems. Pneumonia is one, and COVID infection is a definite cause of atypical pneumonia, but her COVID swab is negative. So does this patient have pneumonia? It is a cause of respiratory failure, yes. Disease severe enough to need a ventilator, though? That's more likely in the elderly, those with significant lung problems, immunosuppression, or other severe comorbidities. Pneumonia doesn't cause sudden collapse in a healthy person. Now, we don't know anything about this woman's past medical history, but she appears to be in reasonably good health. Ordering antibiotics is a good idea, just in case, but something doesn't seem quite right here. What about other causes of respiratory failure? Tons of things cause it, many of which you've heard of. Asthma and bronchitis are two. She isn't wheezing, so these are ruled out. Pulmonary edema is fluid buildup in the lungs, commonly seen with congestive heart failure. A definite 
common cause of respiratory failure, but we'd see it on the x-ray. There is a medical problem we encounter frequently in the ER causing respiratory failure and sudden collapse. It's a pulmonary embolus, blood clots in the lungs. The blood clot interferes with the circulation of oxygenated blood, and it causes chest pain, shortness of breath, syncope or fainting in medical terms, hypoxia, and sudden death. You can't see it on x-ray because the blood clot is a similar density to lung and other soft tissues in the chest. CT is the best modality for diagnosis, so you order a scan. Prothrombotic agents, i.e. proclotting agents, can obviously cause blood clots, but otherwise, not a ton of poisons cause pulmonary embolus. While you're waiting for the CT scan, you call the critical care team to get her admitted to the ICU. This is a toxicology podcast, so what are the toxic causes of respiratory failure? The answer here is, again, a lot of things. Pneumonitis, inflammation in the lungs, is caused by exposure to many different poisons, including toxic gases and occupational hazards. It's pretty unlikely either of those occurred in the hotel room, otherwise the whole hotel would be sick. Combining cleaning fluids can cause lung irritation and toxicity. It's possible she was cleaning the hotel room, though she wasn't wearing a uniform, and EMS would probably have mentioned that she was an employee. Seems unlikely. The nurse tells you the patient's daughter is waiting in the family room. The younger woman is sitting on a hard plastic chair, crying. She's so distraught, she's barely able to speak. She tells you her mother has no medical problems and that she was perfectly fine until a few moments prior to arrival. The patient said she couldn't breathe, then she collapsed. The daughter says they're visiting from out of town and staying together in the hotel room where EMS picked the patient up. She keeps asking to see her mother, and it's clear she can't give us much more information right now. So you bring the daughter to the patient's bedside. She clutches her mother's hand and cries even harder at the sight of all the tubes and monitors. You give the daughter a few minutes in the hopes she'll collect herself so you can ask some more questions about what happened. While waiting, an oily yellow stain spreads across the sheet underneath the patient. It isn't urine, and it isn't stool. The nurse gets clean sheets to change the bed. After a few minutes, the daughter stops sobbing for long enough to ask, Is that the silicone leaking out? She just got a butt lift. Can you put her on her stomach so it doesn't all come out? Question number one in today's interactive podcast. True or false, silicone can cause respiratory failure. The answer? true. It's hard to believe that injecting something into the buttocks could cause respiratory failure, but it can. Back to this in a minute. As soon as she asks, we have a valuable clue to the diagnosis. So you question the daughter more closely, confirming your suspicion. The mother and daughter arrived at the hotel yesterday and are here for silicone injections. A friend recommended the, quote, nurse after getting a cosmetic procedure herself. Both the mother and the daughter got injections today. You ask for more details, and the daughter's reluctance to share more information confirms your suspicion it was an unlicensed procedure. Eventually, she says, it wasn't done in an operating room or even a doctor's office. It was done on a massage table in a hotel room, one floor below the room where they are staying. 
pretty much a guarantee it wasn't done by a medical practitioner, not a real nurse, or at least not a licensed one. The odds the substance was medical-grade silicone? Low. You pull up the patient's chest CT images. The lungs are filled with clumps and spots of white. Lungs are supposed to be black on imaging, filled with air, if they're working properly. The diagnosis? Silicone embolism syndrome, a life-threatening complication of liquid silicone injection. First, let's discuss cosmetic injections in general. In modern medicine, they started in the 1800s, and since that time, all sorts of different substances have been used as fillers. Paraffin was tried first, then things like mineral oil and beef collagen taken from cows. Fat has been transplanted, removed from one part of the body, and injected into another for reconstructive purposes. Silicone yielded desirable results and was initially thought to be inert, but after extensive complications were noted by doctors, it's fallen out of favor for use in medicine. Unfortunately, it's still often used in illicit circumstances. No procedure is without complications, even so-called minor procedures performed in the best medical facilities by the best physicians. So why would anyone take the risk of injections with an unlicensed practitioner in a hotel room or a basement? Cost is a common reason. You don't need me to tell you that plastic surgery is expensive and unaffordable for many. In addition, some patients seeking care feel ostracized by the medical establishment, preferring to obtain care from within their own community where they don't fear judgment. And as in this case, friends or family may recommend procedures after obtaining desirable results, at least in the short term, themselves. These illegal operations are sometimes called pumping parties and the person injecting the pumper. Recommendations are spread, as I said, by word of mouth, and it's not uncommon for clients to fly in from out of state or even from other countries in the hopes of improving their appearance. The risks of silicone? Some aren't hard to guess. Hotel rooms and basements aren't sterile, so infection is an obvious concern. The silicone can leak out afterwards, and some pumpers have sealed leaks with crazy glue. It's not surprising that infection and sepsis are reported after this. While infection might not be an unpredictable side effect, I doubt that most participants are aware of the potential life-threatening complications and long-term consequences. Plastic surgeons rarely use liquid silicone these days given its myriad of problems, and those who do recommend microdoses only. When silicone is encapsulated, like in breast implants, complications occur only when the implant leaks. So leaks are the reason why saline implants are safer and currently recommended. But nevertheless, if the silicone implant remains intact, the body isn't directly exposed to the material inside. There's also a big difference between medical-grade and non-medical-grade silicone. Initially, as I said, medical-grade silicone was thought to be inert, not reacting inside the body. We now know that this isn't the case, and patients with breast implant ruptures, for example, can certainly have complications. However, non-medical-grade silicone is far more reactive, meaning it causes an inflammatory response in the body. Before I talk about this in more detail, let me ask question number two. What substance have people injected or been injected with in pursuit of an improved appearance? A. Olive oil. B. Petroleum jelly brand name Vaseline, C, paraffin wax, D, transmission fluid, or E, all of the above.
The answer, E, all of the above. So what exactly is non-medical grade silicone? It's a good question. At pumping parties, it's anybody's guess. Silicone is a synthetic material also called siloxone. It's used as a lubricant, a sealant, and an adhesive. It's found in things like rubber cooking utensils, toys, brake fluid, and caulk. Non-medical grade means it might be purchased from a hardware store or online. Bathroom caulk is one example. Yes, you heard that right. Things like bathroom caulk and transmission fluid containing silicone have been injected into unsuspecting clients. It might be cut with baby oil or Crisco, and it might not be silicone at all. All of the substances in question two have been injected as fillers. What body parts are injected? Pretty much all of them as far as I can tell. It's injected into places where people want the appearance of more curves, more muscles, or more girth. The butt and breasts are very common locations. It can be injected into the face and the lips. Bodybuilders inject oil into their arms to improve the appearance of their biceps. It can be injected into the penis and into the vagina. A man died after injecting silicone into his scrotum to give the appearance of enlarged testicles. Some of the issues are related to volume. Massive quantities of fillers may be injected into a person. As many as one to two liters, for example, could be injected into the buttocks. A Russian bodybuilder reportedly injected three liters of oil into each arm. Each arm. Medically approved injectables carry warnings from the FDA that they are meant to be injected only in small quantities, like areas of the face. Large volumes of these medically approved filter fillers, excuse me, are still considered dangerous. Illegal fillers are far more common than most people think. Even celebrities have gotten them. That brings us to today's pop culture consult and question number three. Which celebrity had black market butt injections? A, Kim Kardashian, B, Jennifer Lopez, C, Cardi B, D, all of the above. The answer, C, Cardi B. She admitted to getting injections in a basement reporting, quote, it was the craziest pain ever, end quote and she has since had them removed. So what exactly are the complications of liquid silicone injections, and what's the connection between injecting something like caulk into your butt and respiratory failure and death? Silicone causes immediate, intermediate, and delayed symptoms, delayed like 25 years later. The symptoms can be local, like infection, or systemic, and some, again like infection, can be treated, but unfortunately many are permanent. Let's start with the immediate complications like those experienced by our patient. Silicone embolism embolism syndrome is a life-threatening disease with an estimated mortality rate of 24 to 33%. Embolism means the silicone moves into the lungs. Lung biopsies and other tests clearly show silicone material in pulmonary cells, despite the fact that it hasn't been injected inside the chest cavity. How does the material go from the butt to the lungs? One way is via intravascular injection. If the silicone is injected directly into an artery or vein, it can be carried into the lungs. Even if the injection is in the soft tissue like the fat, it can still travel. 
The body treats silicone as a foreign material and attempts to break it down. This results in inflammation, and local inflammation can result in exposure to the circulation as well. Some patients with silicone and bliss syndrome do recover after treatment with various modalities, including oxygen, steroids, ventilators, and ECMO. We briefly discussed ECMO in episode two. It's essentially cardiopulmonary bypass, trying to do the work of the heart and the lungs when those organs aren't functioning. However, there is no antidote for silicone. Patients have died immediately after the procedure before leaving the unauthorized location. Others have died from long-term complications of respiratory failure, like a woman who died after being in the ICU and on a ventilator for over a month. Once the silicone gets into the lungs, different reactions can occur separately or simultaneously. Pneumonitis, as I said earlier, is inflammation of the lungs. ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, is when fluid builds up in the lung sacs instead of air, leading to reduced oxygenation. Alveolar hemorrhage is bleeding into those same sacs. Neurological sequelae like strokes and microhemorrhages are also possible. As high as the mortality rate is with pulmonary complications, the report of fatalities from neurological complications is as high as 100%. Hepatitis, liver inflammation is reported, and like the lung, silicone is found inside the liver cells. Local complications occur days to years following injection. As I said earlier, the body reacts to foreign substances with inflammation. It will try to expel it. Think of glass inside a wound. The body will eventually push it out. With a large volume of silicone, one to two liters, this can lead to gruesome non-healing wounds as the body tries to expel this foreign material. The activated immune system will attempt to wall off from the rest of the body what it can expel. So patients can develop hard nodules in areas in and around the injection sites. Some of the hard tissue is scar tissue. Others are granulomas, which are clumps of immune cells. Both can be painful and press on important structures. They can also be very disfiguring, especially on the face. Unlike encapsulated silicone, like a breast implant, liquid silicone is subject to gravity and can migrate. Patients who had silicone injections into their buttocks note migration all the way down their legs, with lumps of silicone ending up around their ankles. Again, the movement can cause chronic pain and an undesired appearance with random chunks and nodules in random locations. Patients also report they can feel the silicone hardening in the winter, like rocks in their face, for example, and in the heat, it softens, and patients have said they feel like their face is melting in the summer. Some of these chronic effects can be treated surgically. One illustrative case reported in the literature occurred after paraffin injection into the penis 35 years prior. After injection, the man reported sexual dysfunction due to an irregular shape. Eventually, he presented for medical care due to difficulty urinating. Evaluation revealed hardened paraffin and a large granuloma obstructing his urethra. After surgical resection, he was able to urinate and his sexual problems resolved. However, in many cases, surgery is prohibitively expensive or not even an option. Surgical resection or removal is typically paid out of pocket. An operative removal may not be effective or it may be too dangerous. Over time, the silicone hardens, adhering to surrounding structures, including muscle and blood vessels. 
to remove it, significant portions of muscle leading to loss of function could occur. If blood vessels are involved, intraoperative hemorrhage could be life-threatening. So once again, let's get back to our patient. She requires ventilator support for two weeks. As her lungs heal, she's gradually weaned and makes it off the vent. She wakes up and gives information about the, quote, nurse to the police. Today's episode didn't contain many wrong choices for you to make in this patient's care. She could easily have died from the disease. There are few wrong medical choices, however, because treatment options are so limited. The main goal here is supportive care, securing her airway and keeping her on the ventilator. The lack of medical treatment options is a problem we toxicologists are used to dealing with, unfortunately. In contrast to cardiology or oncology, for example, toxicologists have very little research to guide us in patient management in the case of many poisons. Why? Several reasons. First, we can't conduct a large randomized controlled trial, the gold standard of research in medical care. It's simply not ethical to poison half the patients in a study to see which treatment is better. Second, many types of poisoning are uncommon, so it's difficult to gather large amounts of data to arrive at statistically significant conclusions. As such, we do the best we can for patients with the limited data we have. This case is fictional, as are all our cases to protect the innocent. However, these complications are very real. Numerous pumpers have been convicted of crimes from the unlicensed practice of medicine to manslaughter. It's easy to sympathize with someone who wants to improve their appearance and visits a, quote, nurse recommended by a friend. I suspect very few patients understand the very real risk of permanent disability and death from these so-called cosmetic procedures. The legal details are as disturbing as the medical ones. A woman who said her patient called her the, quote, Michelangelo of bodywork, quote, served only a year in prison after a client died in her basement in Queens. She injected the client with silicone obtained on eBay, then left her dying on the floor holding her mother's hand after advising them not to call 911. The next day, the woman fled on a flight to the UK. The extradition agreement was that she serve only one year. At the trial, the judge said she literally got away with murder. A person in Florida was convicted after injecting fix-a-flat, cement, and superglue into patients. This brings us to question number four and the last one in today's interactive podcast. Use of fillers started shortly after this, the discovery and or invention of which of the following? A, operating rooms, B, syringes, C, antibiotics, D, lidocaine, numbing medicine. Post your answers in our Twitter poll, at Pick Poison One, and I'll post the answer in the next 24 hours. Finally, thanks for your attention. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making the podcast. It helps if you subscribe, leave, leave reviews, and or tell your friends. Please leave your comments. I love to hear from listeners. All the episodes are available on our website at pickpoison.com, Apple, Spotify, or any other location where podcasts are available. Our Facebook and Instagram pages are both at Pick Poison One. And additional sources like references and photos are available on the website along with transcripts. While I'm a real doctor, this podcast is fictional, meant for entertainment and educational purposes, not medical advice. If you have a medical problem, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you. Until next time, 
Take care and stay safe.